Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Over the past decade, bad policing has been a constant presence in the headlines, particularly in coverage of police violence against people of color. It makes us wonder if policing can be improved and changes in culture can be achieved. In his new book, Walk the Walk, today's guest, Neil Gross, examines three cities where he argues police chiefs were able to make significant improvements and culture changes in policing. In addition to being an author and former police officer, Neil is a professor of sociology at Colby College. After more than two weeks of protest following the death of George Floyd, a number of police departments across the country have announced new measures. The Memphis Police Department may well have deactivated the Scorpion unit, but... Tyree Nichols' death has Americans asking what happened to all those vows by police agencies to reform and retrain. You know, we've been a pioneer in community policing here in Portland, Oregon. We're at a point now where I think law enforcement throughout the nation is going to have to take a long, hard look at the service we're providing communities. Protesters flooded the streets again over the weekend, demanding an end to police brutality and the defunding of police forces. I'm Neil Gross, a professor of sociology at Colby College in Maine. I'm an advocate for careful, pragmatic, evidence-based police reform, not abolition or defunding. Sorry, not sorry. Neil, thank you so much for being with us today. I so appreciate you spending the time because this is such an important conversation that we're about to have. And I want to talk to you about Walk the Walk. But first, will you just tell me and your listeners a little bit about who you are, where you come from, and the work that you do? Sure. So I'm a professor of sociology at Colby College, which is a liberal arts college in Maine. I've taught here since 2015 or so and lived all over the place with my wife and son before that. But I'm originally from the San Francisco Bay Area. And after college, before going to graduate school, I worked briefly as a police officer in Berkeley, California. As an academic, as a sociologist, I've only returned to studying policing relatively recently. But that's kind of what I've been working on for the last few years. And just recently with this new book, Walk the Walk, I'm thrilled to be talking about it with you here today. When you were a police officer, you were part of a traffic stop that almost went very wrong. Can you tell us a bit about that stop and how it changed you? So I should say by way of background that I went into 
law enforcement for the same reasons that I think a lot of people do. There's a perception often that people go into policing for all the wrong reasons. And of course, that is true for some people who go into the occupation. But for many others, they go into it with idealistic goals. They want to help the community make their towns they live in, work in safer. And that was true for me. As I said, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 80s, early 90s. The crime was really high. And I wanted to lend my hand to making the community that I loved, which was Berkeley, safer. And then I had a sort of secondary goal, which was to work from the inside to try to make the criminal justice system more fair and more equitable. I wasn't really sure as a very young person at this point what that would look like. But this was not too long after the trials for the officers who'd beaten Rodney King. And I very much had that on my mind when I went into law enforcement, went to police academy, and there learned that car stops, traffic stops can be really dangerous. At the beginning of my book, I described an incident that took place one spring night, not too long after I'd finished field training. It was just a traffic stop for a minor infraction. And the driver didn't pull over. I had to give chase for a couple blocks. When the car finally did stop, the passenger refused to get back in the car, despite my asking to do so. You know, in the academy, we were taught traffic stops are dangerous. I remember there was a poster that hung on the walls in the academy that said, don't let them kill you on some dirty freeway. And I had that in my mind during the traffic stop. So I told the driver, the passenger to get back inside and a melee ensued. Fight broke out. And I tell the story in more detail in the book, but I ended up having to draw my handgun to help bring the situation to a close. And it could have easily gone in a very different direction. And that story has really stuck with me. For me, it was interesting looking back and very upsetting looking back thinking about how I'd made the transition from this young, idealistic cop to somebody who was so close to shooting somebody. I should add that I was white, the driver and the passenger were black. So this was in the context of all the racial tensions at the time. So for me, it was an, a lesson in how much the culture of policing and the training of policing can really reshape the perspective of young officers. Are there people who get into the police force who maybe didn't have the idealistic hopes that you have? Are there people who are nefarious, who are going into it with a white supremacy mentality? Policing is a very big occupation. There's something like three quarters of a million police officers in the U.S., depending on how you count, 15 to 18,000 different law enforcement agencies. You know, we're all familiar with really big departments, but 90% of departments in the U.S. are really small really tiny. And the screening procedures that are used in those agencies vary enormously. You know, some are quite effective at weeding out anyone with the kinds of racist views that you've described. Others are less effective. And it's certainly been the case historically that there's been a disproportionate representation of those with white supremacist views in law enforcement. This goes all the way back 20s, 30s, 40s, into the 50s and 60s. We're getting rare insight from police officers about the challenges of fighting racism inside a department. A growing number of police departments in America's largest cities told us they've added implicit bias training. But hundreds of officers in multiple states have recently been exposed for racist social media posts attacking minorities and promoting racial stereotypes. We all know of too many incidents today that still speak to that presence. Does that speak to the vast majority of those in law enforcement? I don't think it does, but it's certainly the case that we need to do a better job of screening out people who just should not be doing this kind of work. I love your book. And much of the book looks at police chiefs who made significant changes in police culture. I want you to really lay out and define the phrase police culture for us. Sure. If you spent time around law enforcement or in law enforcement, the elements of police culture are intuitive. 
for those who haven't, culture is norms, it's those informal rules that people follow, it's values, it's the worldview that people in a group have. And police culture, going way, way back, has emphasized some components which are pretty distinctive. It's very often characterized by a sort of us versus them attitude, the belief that policing is an incredibly dangerous occupation. And it is dangerous, although in some respects less than most cops think. Police culture also emphasizes the notion of loyalty to your brothers in blue, above all. And it emphasizes aggression, the idea that the best way to be a cop, to be a real cop, is to strike an aggressive attitude, not just occasionally, not when it's absolutely necessary, but in every aspect of your interaction with citizens. The idea of taking flack from anyone on the street is something you shouldn't do. It's part of that culture. So that culture has been with us for a long time. And there's studies that suggest that you find elements of it, not just in the US, but in other countries as well. And that cop culture is very difficult thing to get around if you're a police chief trying to engage in reforms, or indeed, if you're a community member trying to engage in reforms. An argument that's been made by many chiefs over the years, and I certainly make it in my book, is that Policy reforms and policy changes are really important if you want to get better policing, changing legal liabilities for the police, for example, or a more restrictive use of force policies. But at the end of the day, on the street, on the ground, when cops are in the heat of the moment, they're going to rely on the norms and values that they've learned from spending time around other cops. That culture is going to push back against whatever positive policy changes you want to make. So if you're only changing policy without changing culture, you're not likely to get anywhere with police reform. And so the argument of the book is that that's where we really need to spend a lot more attention and a lot more of our national focus right now. And you mentioned informal rules. Tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. So an informal rule is something that's not baked into policy. It's not something that your chief says you have to do. It's not something that your general orders say you have to do. It's just a kind of a code, a code that's followed by other people in your group, by other people on your street. For example, the notion that you should be, as I just said, aggressive and not take flack from anyone that you interact with. That's one of those informal rules, right? It might be taught to you by a field training officer that you ride with after you get out of the academy. It might be communicated to you by a senior officer who you interact with once you've graduated from field training. You might see cops acting this way and they serve as informal role models to you. And you absorb the notion that that's how you're supposed to act. That's how you're supposed to behave. Even if you didn't go into the profession thinking that, even if that's not necessarily entirely consistent with your personality, it's one of those informal rules that people pick up. And of course, all groups, all occupations have some kind of subculture. But in this case, the subculture, I think, leads in some very dangerous directions. And oftentimes, the incidents that we see of brutality on the part of law enforcement result not from the application of the rules of the department, but indeed from the playing out of exactly these kinds of informal rules. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about what your opinion is based on all of your experience and your whole background and what you're doing now. What about that culture needs to change? And if that opinion has shifted from when you were inside to when you were outside to maybe even when you wrote this book? That's a great question. I'll tell you a quick story. Before COVID hit, I was down in New Orleans. This tells the story of three departments, as you mentioned, that tried to change their culture, really put a focus on that. Stockton, California, Longmont, Colorado, and LaGrange, Georgia. 
Originally, I was going to include New Orleans as well because it's made some changes, although proved not to be as significant as I initially thought. And I was down for a training that was uh, being done. A lot of police executives, police chiefs there. And I remember one of the assistant chiefs at the time stood up in front of this room of cops from all over. And he said, we're at the point in policing where if we don't change the way the profession runs, other people are going to start changing it for us in ways that we don't like and that are going to be detrimental to public safety. So I think there is an awareness to answer your question on the part of many in law enforcement, especially at the top of the occupation, that something has to shift. There's a recognition that it's time that culture change, but people aren't necessarily sure how to do that. Lots of departments will say they're going to shift culture. Oftentimes, those are just window dressing changes designed to basically reassure critics and they don't amount to much. I really wanted to highlight departments that did more than window dressing changes and that were really able to produce meaningful and measurable changes in the way that their cops acted. So that was the focus of the book. So I think there's real interest in this right now, but we're not seeing as much of a national conversation around changing police culture as I would like anyway. The shallow symbolism of just a one-time speaking out, we can't stop here. And I mean, where were we when uh, some of these other uh, people were killed? There was a lot of silence from our profession. And for that, we are wrong. I am wrong. I am sorry. Why do you think chiefs didn't speak up before? It had to be something this heinous, Chief Hall. These positions that we're in, uh, if we're going to be truthful about it, are very political. And so I think the balance of of what is true and right versus what is politically um, correct to say gets in the way. The thing that I think is most striking in just the time that I've been alive is that the police forces have claimed a lot of the surplus military equipment left over from wars. And that's vehicles and weapons and armor and all of the things. What effect do you think that increase in the militarization of police forces have on not only the police forces, but also the culture within the police force and also the public perception of the police force? So on the public perception piece, I think there's good polling data to suggest that most Americans would like to see the police use less in the way of this surplus military equipment. There's certainly public concern about militarization. I guess my own take on this is that militarization is, it's a difficult thing to sort of wrap your head around what it means for the day-to-day of policing. One of the reasons I wrote this book is because I think people don't really have a sense for what most cops spend their time doing. And on the militarization piece, it's certainly true that many departments are now using SWAT teams with specialized equipment for things that they should not be using them for. For example, relatively low-level drug raids where the risk to officers is very low, but the risk to civilians is very high. We're seeing cops use that kind of equipment, armored personnel carriers and so on, to police demonstrations, which is, except in the most unusual situations, a terrible idea. So you are seeing militarization in that sense. At the same time, The vast majority of what cops do day to day doesn't involve any of that equipment. Most of what cops spend their time doing is responding to domestic disturbances, responding to traffic accidents, you know, taking reports on minor offenses, helping the proverbial cat get out of a tree. This is the vast majority of what the police time is spent on. And departments are super busy. A small department like Lake Range PD, one of my places I got to spend a bunch of time, is a city of 30,000. And they're responding to tens of thousands of calls for service every year. So officers there are going from call to call. And it's rare that they have to use any of this kind of surplus military equipment. So I understand why people are upset about it. I think it's something that needs to be scaled back. At the same time, it's just a, it's a very dangerous sliver 
but it's just a tiny sliver of what the overall picture of law enforcement looks like in this country. So in that sense, it's a bit of a red herring, I'd say. Yes, but I do feel like that's what we often see. What is being covered on the news are these moments where the police force shows up almost looking like a video game. And I think that visual, like it tells a story, maybe it's not the right story of what's going on, but it does tell a story. And so when we see those moments or we see a big tank-like vehicle showing up at a protest, it does, I think, feed into this us versus them mentality that a lot of civilians have about the police force. I think you're completely right. And certainly policing needs to be far more aware of what the perception is of civilians when those kinds of things do show up. So yes, you're right. Again, I'll just add one of the reasons I wrote this book beyond just profiling the chiefs was I want to profile cops, just everyday beat cops doing their job, domestic violence detectives, people working on gang task forces, trying to suppress gun violence to give them maybe a more robust picture of what policing looks like, at least in departments that are trying to do better. It's not that military stuff doesn't enter into the story that I tell. Notably, I have a chapter in the book about a bank robbery and hostage-taking situation in Stockton that went horribly awry, in which the police department did end up bringing in one of their armored vehicles. But again, the day-to-day of policing is very different. So I think we have to address the militarization piece, no question. But I think we also need to address this more general cultural piece. And you're right that the two are connected. The more that the police think of themselves as an occupying force, the more it is an us versus them mentality. And that's something that we have to fundamentally break down. Do you think police forces should be integrated into communities? Do you think police forces should feel like they are part of the community? Or is it your opinion that they should feel separate? Cops have long felt alienated from their communities. You know, one of the fascinating things for me when I started writing this book was I went back and looked at studies of the cops, of the police by social scientists going back to the 50s and 60s. One of the studies I came across was this fascinating study done in early 1950s in Gary, Indiana, where, you know, the officer told, social scientist officers told them that they felt like pariahs in their community. They felt that they didn't have the respect of citizens. They didn't really feel part of the community. So that us versus them attitude was present all the way back then. My name is Kim Boguki. I'm a peace officer, a public servant, a cop, a 27-year veteran of the Seattle Police Department. I love my job, but honestly, never in my career have I seen such a divide between police and community. Cops and robbers, good guys and bad guys, black and white, us and them. But to answer your question, yeah, it is absolutely imperative that the police see themselves as part of the community. And I should add, it's absolutely imperative that citizens see the police as part of the community to the extent that's possible. And there's very good social science evidence to suggest that the more representative of a community officers are, the better they police. For example, socially, we didn't necessarily know the answer to this for a long time because it's a lot of pieces of the puzzle to try to fit together. But there's good evidence that all else equal when there's more racial and ethnic representation in communities, use of force declines when there's greater gender representation use of force declines. There's a big push now in many agencies to try to reach at least 30% of officers being female by 2030. Many agencies are struggling to get anywhere close to that. And I'll say there's also some fascinating new research on political representation. That is that in cities, especially blue cities, if there's a major disparity, which there often is, between the politics of cops and the politics of the citizens who live there, then that also causes problems. So 
in, in every respect, you want cops to be more representative and also just to have more experiences. One of the things that often happens in policing, you were saying citizens often only see these instances where you know, something like tanks roll in. Well, oftentimes in communities, cops will only see people who are having, as often said, having the worst day of their lives, people who are engaged in serious criminal activity or having some kind of crisis. But the vast majority of people who are just living their lives, oftentimes cops don't see. So cops need to be put in situations where they can just have many more interactions with people in their daily lives so they can, again, break down those us versus them barriers. Tell us about the three police chiefs, your book profiles. Very different figures. One is a guy named Eric Jones in Stockton, California. It's about an hour east of the San Francisco Bay Area. It's a city of about 300,000, 320,000 in the Central Valley. And Eric Jones graduated from the police academy about one year after I did. And he took the helm there in, in 2012. Stockton really suffered in the financial crisis. A lot of houses were underwater. The city lost a ton of tax revenue. And basically, the police got defunded, not through anyone's political efforts, but because the city went bankrupt. So they lost like a quarter of their force through early retirements and, and forced layoffs, basically. And the murder rate just skyrocketed. Stockton historically has a very large gang violence problem, high homicide rate, and it just went through the roof. So Jones took over and his job was to bring down that violence to the extent that he could. And he found that the historic mistrust between Stockton PD and the community, particular the Black and Latino communities in Stockton, was a major impediment to bringing down the crime rate for reasons I'm happy to get into. But so he was a fascinating figure and he worked tirelessly over the course of 10 years to try to change the culture of Stockton PD. It wasn't entirely successful. It's a story of, I'd say, fairly modest, but real success nonetheless in implementing a model that many people call procedural justice. Again, happy to talk about that. Very different story, Longmont. Longmont's about 100,000. It's high plains town, very beautiful there in Colorado. And Longmont is demographically looks a lot like the state of Colorado, large white and Latino community. And there in the 90s, a police chief, fascinating guy named Mike Butler took over the department. Mike's a very progressive police chief. He was very concerned with the things that I'm sure many of your listeners are concerned with, like mass incarceration, like the war on drugs. And he wanted to do whatever he could to make the police department in Longmont something that would serve the public good. So among the many changes that he put in place was he partnered with a community organization around something called restorative justice, which is an alternative to incarceration. There are other places that have restorative justice, but in Longmont, they got it worked out where cops, instead of having to arrest someone for a minor offense, they could steer them directly into a restorative justice process run by this community group. So imagine you're a cop in Longmont and you come across a teenager who, you know, shoplifts something. Store owner calls you and says, I want something done. In normal circumstances, you'd have to make an arrest or issue a citation or put the person into the formal juvenile justice system. In Longmont, they now have this system work out where if it seems like the person could benefit from an, an approach other than incarceration, other than getting swept into the criminal justice system, they'll direct them to a restorative justice program. So what that means is they're get set up with this community group. The community group will contact the victim and say, look, are you willing to do something different here? Are you willing to get together with the offender in a few months time or six months time, something like that? We will ask the offender to go through a long process of education. We'll ask the offender to really think about what they did. We'll ask the offender to come into the room to hear about the damage that they caused, to explain why they did what they did. Their family members might be there. Oftentimes there's a restitution component to it. And the idea is to try to make the crime whole, to repair the harm that's been done, but without incarceration. And there's really strong experimental evidence out of the UK that for many crimes, restorative justice 
results in lower levels of recidivism, lower levels of reoffending for people who've committed the crimes, and also lower levels of PTSD for victims. I'd like you to recall a time when you were really hurt by another person. Maybe physically, maybe they lied to you or broke your trust. Maybe they stole something from you or put their interests ahead of yours. In that moment and the weeks and the months following, what was it that you really wanted? What would have actually made you feel better? There are some kinds of cases for which restorative justice, I think, is really not appropriate. Sexual assault, for example, and also domestic violence. But for those cases where it is appropriate, it can be a really good alternative to incarceration. And just so I'm clear, so that it's by the cop's judgment, or do they have to go in front of a judge to have that recommended? How does that work? In Longmont, it's through the judgment of the officers. And so to have this work effectively, you have to have a really clear set of criteria for under what conditions can you recommend someone for restorative justice and steer them to that. Because you could imagine not done well, this could be a real place for bias to creep in, right? Imagine an officer with bad intentions steering upper middle class kids toward justice and working class or poor kids toward the formal criminal justice system, for example. So it has to be done well and it has to, it, it depends on hiring officers who you have a lot of faith and trust in. And that was the other thing that Mike Butler, this chief in Longmont did. He worked to fundamentally change the ethos of the department to really put an emphasis on de-escalation and on trying to deliver a high level of service to the community. I was floored, spent time in Longmont with domestic violence detectives, with patrol officers, and I saw them engage in acts of de-escalation, for example, that I just would never have expected. And I'll add, it wasn't just when I was present, I also was given access to body cam video. And I saw the cops there behave in ways that were certainly very different than I learned as a cop back in California. So he managed to change the culture of the department. Finally, LaGrange, Georgia. This is 30,000 person community. The city is about half black, half white. It's near the Alabama state line and has a terrible history of racism in that community. It's part of a county called Troop County, which was the fifth largest slaveholding county in the Confederacy and remained deeply segregated for many decades, so much so that there were still de facto segregated swimming facilities for kids in LaGrange up until the early 90s. I talked to one officer there, a black officer who started in the 70s, and he told me that for a long time, the rule was that he was not allowed to pull over or write tickets for white people. It was a department that really had this terrible history and present of racism. So there, a chief, very different politics than Mike Butler, I think, named Lou Deckmar, took over. It wasn't from the South. Long stories, from New Jersey, grew up in Oregon, spent time in Wyoming as in law enforcement. And he came in and he tried to change the department and to fundamentally professionalize it, to make it a place where rule following was taken much more seriously. And there were some conditions in LaGrange that made it easier for him to do that. Notably, there's no police union in LaGrange, so it's easier for him to fire bad cops. But he utterly transformed the department. And then what was most interesting to me, folks in LaGrange got really interested in the project of trying to build more trust between Black and white residents there. And Dekmar is a conservative, and he was very skeptical about this. He thought it was racial sensitivity training, but he took part in it, and his eyes were opened. And as a result of that process and a lot of the work done by the community, he ended up apologizing for his department's role in a lynching that had taken place back in 1940, a very public apology. And it was a big deal for the community. So three very different cops, very different dynamics of reform. But I wanted to show that whether a city is small, medium-sized, on the larger side of things, 
you can make real progress with changing police culture if you are very committed to that project. And it does take, I think, an incredibly special person to be able to change culture, right? You can change rules and you can change procedure, but to actually change something that is a culture is really difficult. And it's we're seeing it with Me Too, the cultural and societal shift of toxic masculinity. And I think there's an intersection to all of them. But I do think in the reckoning that we've seen for police over the past, I don't know, decade or so, Violence by police committed against people of color seems to be a constant occurrence. And I'm wondering if you think it's racial bias or even just an overt racism, if those things are part of that culture. Is it part of a police culture or is it just isolated incidents? Because it just feels like it goes hand in hand. I think trying to parse out the causes of the racial inequalities that, that we see in police violence is a, it's a complicated endeavor because there are very different kinds of violence and its dynamics can work out differently in different communities. Does implicit bias or overt bias play a role in some of those instances? I think the answer is almost certainly yes. It would be foolish to suggest that's not the case. You don't need to be racist to... Um have bias. I think people, when they think about racism, they're thinking about, you know, old-fashioned racism. They're thinking about burning crosses. They're thinking about people with hoods on. We can call that bias, right? And it is bias and it is racism and so forth. Those people are more extreme. You know, they're not, they don't exist everywhere. They're not your everyday person. We all can also possess bias and it's bias that you know, um, it's harder to detect and it's bias sometimes that's more subtle and uh, we also can act on that. I think that there are other factors that are probably more institutional and might be more along the lines of what people would think of as institutional racism. So, for example, if the police are very heavily deployed in black neighborhoods such that they end up stopping a lot more people in those neighborhoods than they would in white neighborhoods, even if there weren't any bias, which again, sometimes there is, then you would expect more of those interactions to go awry. So I think that's clearly part of the problem as well. And I'll say that another piece of this that we sometimes don't pay that much attention to is the cops themselves don't necessarily know, the police executives don't necessarily have good data to track how often these incidents are occurring. Serious use of force incidents, lethal shootings, yes, but more minor uses of force. For many years, the police department really didn't keep track of that. It's been impossible for police executives to fully monitor how much there is and to really do their part to minimizing it. Now, I think there's a lot of effort now, a lot of interest now in trying to get much better data. When departments have that data, sometimes they don't make it available to the public. So you know, the lack of information, lack of data availability is a part of the problem. And it's also part of the problem in trying to figure out a solution, because unless you have a really good sense for what those outcome metrics are, it's hard to tell whether policy X or policy Y is more effective at reducing racial disparities and at reducing that level of violence. if the gun violence in this country has also 
contributed to a police force feeling like they're on more high alert than before. And so the stakes feel higher. Because I think with the police brutality aside, which obviously is disgusting, I think that there's also with this availability of guns and how it seems like gun laws are getting more relaxed rather than the other way. Is there a sense of police, you know, where cops are like, I don't know what he has in that car? Very much. I think it's hard to emphasize, unless you spend time in other countries and observing what policing looks like there, just how much cops are affected by the fact that there are millions and millions of guns floating around in this country. You never know when you're going to encounter someone who has a gun. In many places, most people will have a gun, if not in their car, you know, in their home. It's hugely impactful for police. It makes them very afraid, very fearful. One of the tensions I've thought about in the current moment of politics is, on the one hand, there's real interest in gun control and in pushing forward meaningful legislation that will curb the availability of weapons that can be used in crimes of all sorts, including mass shootings. On the other hand, I think sometimes we, especially those of us on the left, don't recognize that it's cops that are going to be doing the enforcement of those laws, right? If it's a question of going in and seizing weapons from people who shouldn't have them, if it's a question of going in and taking guns back from those who've purchased them illegally or have made modifications to them, those are all tasks that we offload onto law enforcement. That's, I think, one of the many ways in which law enforcement is really critical in a country like ours. But we're almost putting officers in a very difficult position here because we, I think, don't recognize just how dangerous the presence of guns makes their job. Now, I said earlier that policing is not quite as dangerous as cops seem to believe. And it's, again, important to be nuanced and careful in that regard. It's not like there are hundreds of police officers who are killed every year through gun violence. The numbers hover around 50 or 60, depending on the year. Many more died during COVID, of COVID, and in traffic accidents. So the number of line-of-duty homicides, it's, of course, still far too high. Right? One is far too high. But it's not as high as some officers, I think. The number of assaults on police officers, non-lethal assaults, is much higher. And if I'm remembering the numbers, I think it's one in 12 officers will be assaulted over the course of a year. It's a dangerous job. It's not necessarily as constantly life-threatening as some officers think, but it's difficult to imagine. You're in a situation where you're pulling someone over and it could be for a minor offense or it could be for a crime that they've committed and you don't know if they've got a gun on them. You don't know if that's going to be the day that you get into a gun battle. And that doesn't happen often to cops, but it's a terrifying prospect. On the airwaves in states like Pennsylvania. John Fetterman wants to release convicted murderers from prison. Public safety is why I ran for office. And now, on the stump. I'm opposed to defunding the police. I'm also opposed to defunding the FBI. How to fight crime and gun violence are taking center stage. We are in 2023. 2024 is an election year. Talk to us about the role that elections have on policing, especially when candidates run from a tough-on-crime platform? I am not certainly an advocate of that kind of position when it comes to policing. My sense is that we've lost a sort of sensible center-left position on police reform and public safety in general. When it comes to the tough-on-crime stuff, the idea is, on the part of some conservatives anyway, that the police can do no wrong, that the police are massively over-criticized, and that the best thing is to just make as many arrests as possible and lock people away. It is sometimes the case that the public doesn't have a, an accurate representation of what law enforcement looks like. In fact, I think the law and order conservative types have it exactly backwards. 
there's good evidence from social science and from the nature of policing, the way policing's worked out in places like Stockton, that the more effective you can be at smart police reform, the more you can build real trust between citizens and cops, the lower the crime rates. So do you need to make arrests? Yes. Do some people need to be incarcerated? Yes. Do you need relatively well-funded police forces? In my estimation, you do. But the way to reduce crime isn't to strike that aggressive, take no holds barred attitude that only alienates the community and escalates situations. So really from the standpoint of reducing crime, we should be leaning in even more to police reform and to, to changing cop culture. I'm going to ask you the million dollar question. If there was one major change that you would like to see made to policing nationwide, what would that change be? There's so many changes that are necessary. Policing is, for the most part, a very local enterprise. As I said, 15 to 18,000 local police departments. While national legislation can be really helpful, there were parts of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that, if passed, could have been quite helpful. You know, again, it's mostly a state and local operation. So most of the work of changing police departments has to be done there. There are two things that I'd like to see happen. Number one, I'd like to see much more systematic efforts at experimenting with changes in police culture. We often talk in this country that policing education system is super decentralized. So how do you bring about change in the whole system? But the other side of that is that there's actually 15 to 18,000 places that could be experimenting with new approaches. I'm a UNICEF ambassador and we call those pilot programs. Exactly. And police departments have had these, but there are some places like the ones I've highlighted, Stockton, LaGrange, where they're beyond pilot programs, where we kind of have proof of concept that you can change law enforcement, but there isn't necessarily enough communication nationally about what programs are successful. I'd like to see a lot more federal grant making directed toward changing cop culture, because I think that's really what we need to be focusing on right now. And then the second thing is really different. I'd like to see a lot more citizen involvement with the police departments. How do we do that? I can't even imagine that would be something that we could get to. There are institutional efforts to do that. For example, there's a big project underway now in Chicago to get more citizen involvement in police policymaking. But beyond that, I think in this country, we often we get angry when government isn't doing the things that we want it to do and when the government's committing acts of injustice and that anger is, can be entirely justified. We protest and we expect our political leaders to, to do something about it. But then we expect that somehow someone else is actually going to do the work on the ground. The leaders will appoint the chiefs who will make the changes and then everything's all fixed as though our commitment to the cause ends at going to a protest or tweeting something or whatever. And that's not to minimize the extent to which people are seriously involved. But changing police culture is a matter of, as I said, bringing cops into the community and bringing the community to the police. So that can mean dialogue with your neighborhood officer. Not easy to do sometimes, right? Because there can be intense dynamics between law enforcement communities that are very difficult, but it can mean inviting your local beat cop to come in for a cup of coffee. It can mean um, sitting down with the precinct commander in your district with a group of citizens and saying, you know what, we'd like to help you change. This is where we'd like to see policing in our community go. This is what justice means to us. Can we have a conversation about what we could do? It might mean trying to interest young people who want to change the system in careers in law enforcement. It's about, again, breaking down those barriers between police and citizens. And the more we can inject the voices of citizens into law enforcement. No, not in the sense that everything citizens come up with are, of course, what the police should do. But the more we can get those citizen voices involved, the more cop culture is going to bend in a more democratic direction. And finally, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is that I think there's just widespread recognition on the part of people at the top of law enforcement that it's time to change. 
there have always been crises in policing. The, the late 60s were one example of that. And sometimes the policies that are put in place after a crisis are they're put in place almost cynically just to make the problem go away. But I think now there's a recognition that we really need to be doing something different, that the approaches we've been taking fundamentally haven't been working. And so I think you're starting to see police leaders really take an interest in this question of culture in a way that is much more intense than they have before. Does that mean that they're all going to be successful? Does that mean that the problems of police are going to be changed overnight? Absolutely not. Does it mean that we should let up on policy change? No, we need to do all those things. But I think that there are at least places around the country where policing is getting better, where policing is likely to get better, and we just need to keep pushing to continue that process along. Well, Neil Gross, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. So I've been a police officer for a very, very long time. And I mean, I predated technology. I'm talking about before pagers. <laughs> Laugh if you want to, but I'm telling the truth. I predate war on our fellow man. I mean, war on drugs. I predate all that. I predate so much, and I've been through ebbs and flows, and I've been through good and bad times, and, and still I absolutely love being a police officer. I love being a police officer because it's always been a calling for me and never a job. And even with that, my personal truth is that law enforcement is in a crisis. It's in a visible crisis, and it has been for many, many years. Even though we in law enforcement say, you know what, uh, we can't arrest our way out of this. We say in law enforcement things like, yeah, it's illegal to profile and you know what, in law enforcement, we even agree that we have to adopt this thing and become more oriented to community policing. And yet all the while, still, we continue in the same vein, the same vein that contradicts everything that we just admitted. It's not debatable that much about how we are policed in the United States is broken. Police forces target, arrest, charge, and incarcerate people of color at dramatically disproportionate rates, and the militarization of police culture is a self-perpetuating problem. And while I understand the base argument, no, all cops are not bastards, and perhaps the only way to change police culture is from within. It's heartening to hear Neil's stories of success and progress it's our job to elect leaders who don't run as tough on crime, but instead run as just and fair creators and enforcers of the laws they enact and hold them accountable to hiring good police chiefs and being open to new ideas in law enforcement. Police culture must change, and we need visionary leaders in police departments to make that happen. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.